We've been, if you could flip out the PowerPoints, um, we've been working through um, the, these three key attributes of God, um, his nature, his very being, his essence, which you find not just sprinkled but concentrated in chunks throughout the New Testament, even in the Old Testament. You see his love and his, his truth and obedience all tied together. You'll see them in phrases joined together, walking in love, speaking the truth in love, to obey is better than sacrifice. I mean, you, you see truth, love, and obedience combined everywhere. And it's about, for us, if we're going to reflect God's character, his very nature, it's about us being salt and light in the world. These things that God is that speak to us, that change the way we look at the world and change the way we act in the world. And thus we become light to people who don't know Jesus Christ, who have no idea who God is. And we also become salt in the world because we keep the world from imploding, as you can see it happening readily around you. It's not that we're great. It's that the power of God in us is great. And thus, we don't want to be diluted. We don't want to be useless salt that's thrown out on the path and trampled. And we don't want to be light that's under a bushel because we're afraid of what people will think of us. Or worse yet, because we haven't been walking in the light, we don't even know what the light is. We're polluted. And those things are what we try to avoid. We don't want to have blind spots where we can't see something in our lives or don't see things that are not right in our lives. Or in worst case, we won't see things that are not right in our walk, in our lives. We want to be walking in truth, walking in love, walking in obedience. So the passage we're going to be looking at today, you want to, once again, once you put your finger on that page, you can just come right back to it toward the end. But we're going to be looking at John chapter 21. That's a big chunk of scripture. John chapter 21, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, which is the one that Jesus used, in case you're wondering. I'm not, a, I'm not a version of the Bible guy. I'm okay with the New King James, which some people do believe is what Jesus used, but it's not true. So uh, let's read this together. John 21, verse, starting at verse 12. This is Jesus appearing to his disciples for the third time after he was resurrected. He said, as he's on the beach, calling them in from their boats, come and have breakfast. And none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they'd finished breakfast... Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Referring to the other disciples. Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Jesus said to him a second time, son, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. And then he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said it to him a third time. He said, do you love me? And Peter said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, 
then feed my sheep. Father, once again, we just come to you. We ask you to open our eyes to your word. We ask you to speak to us, and we ask you to move us into a relationship with you that exudes light and tastes like salt in this community and in this world. In Jesus' name. All right, I'm going to tell you right now, this is a PG-13 presentation. We're going to get the dirty stuff over with at the beginning. Um, In the New Testament, primarily, we're going to be talking about the different kinds of love. We want to get through an understanding of what the essential four kinds of love that are described there are really about so that we can understand what the two kinds of love that are talked about in this passage really mean. So as you look at the presentation in front of you, there are essentially four kinds of love. C.S. Lewis wrote a book on it, a very extensive book about how to understand these four kinds. There's actually more like eight different Greek words for love that are very distinct. Um, The ones that we're looking at are these. The first one is eros. And that is a passionate love. If you find it in the Bible, it's going to be talking about that kind of love that a lover has for another. It's an exclusive kind of thing. If you could flip the slide. It's a feeling of passion, of sexual desire. Um, It's emotional. It's emotionally driven. But in the end, it's a selfish kind of love. And and it's really, I love what you're going to do for me, or I love what you mean to me because you have these attributes that I like a lot. I just want to be with you all the time. So it's kind of immature. The next kind of love that you'll see in the progression of loves is phileo, which you've heard of before. It's a preferential love. Some would call it brotherly love, but it's companionable. It's the kind of thing where you're, you appreciate someone. You just appreciate who they are, and you appreciate their contribution, and you appreciate that they're willing to join with you. There's a mutual closeness because of common pursuits or beliefs, like in a family, brothers and sisters, when they're done fighting at age 20-something. They get along pretty well. They like each other. I love how we get along. That's a great way to say it. The third kind of love, which you don't see much in the New Testament in Greek, is storge. And that's kind of a committed love. That's, um, that's the kind of thing that you would see like in combat veterans who've experienced something together or experiencing something together. They're committed to that mission. And they love the commitment that they find in their their compatriots. But you see it in a mature marriage too, in a Christian marriage where they've been married for a while, a couple will have a commitment to each other that pretty much unshakable. They're not in it to get something out of their mate. They're in it to commit, pursue, finish the race together, lift each other up. And it's the kind of love that says, I love your commitment to what we're doing. I love this mission that we're on together and I love you for joining me on it. And then, of course, the last love is selfless love. And selfless love, agape. Yeah, I, I, I had have a hard time finding a, an example before Jesus Christ of what selfless love was like other than in those cases where someone was laying down their life for their friends. I, I took the time to read a few motivational Congressional Medal of Honor stories. If you haven't done that, it's good once in a while to do that. It makes you want to go out and do great things and appreciate the people who have done amazing things. But you get a sense from that that agape love is really not about the 
the value of the person receiving love. It's a meritless love. It's like God reaching out to us because before we knew him, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It only desires good for the receiver, and it can't be broken. You can't break this love because it's one directional. It's unidirectional. It comes from this point, and it goes that way. The receiver can't break off the love, can't change it, can't do anything to affect it. Once it comes out, it keeps going. And so I put my own very biblical, um, lofty ideals on what that would look like, and I said, I'm available 24-7. The fridge is always open. My brother does this in his community. He has the fridge open all the time. People come by at 11 at night on a Friday, which would freak me out. I, I don't know if I can do that. But he has people over to talk about the Lord at all hours, and it's really motivational. It's also that kind of love that if you like the Princess Bride, anybody out there addicted to the Princess Bride, watch it like three times a year like me. Okay, yeah, we have one confessional. All right. When Buttercup says, farm boy, fetch me that pitcher, he answers, as you wish. It's as you wish, love. This is whatever it is you ask, I will do it if it's for your good. That's what agape is. And thus, Strong's Concordance gives it this name or this phrase to, to fit it. It says, it's not, I'm sorry, I'm unable to see. Love is an emotion cannot be commanded. God calls us to love him, right? But you can't command a love that's felt. How can you say to somebody, I want you to love me like I'm attractive and 18? <laughs> no. I want you to love me like you're married to me. Well, that's weird. You're a guy, I'm a guy. That's just weird. No, love as an emotion cannot be commanded, but love as a choice, that can be commanded. And so God commands us to love in that third, that fourth realm, the agape love. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. So those are the four loves. And like I said, I got the PG-13 done at the front end. We're done with that. <clears throat> there's still some surprises in here. So just so you know, we're gonna, there's going to be some people that are going to be saying, hey, did you have to bring up the submit thing? I mean, just spoiler alert right there. But God's love, just so you know, and then in the New Testament, you're going to find that God's love is all four of those things. He describes himself, even in the Old Testament, as having those attributes. But the highest of those attributes, the highest of those loves is agape. God loved his son. He loved Israel with a jealous love. He loves us as a hen and his chicks. That's what he says in Luke 13. He talked to Hosea and said, I want you to go find a wife who is a harlot. And I want you to love her. God loves to hear our prayers. God loved the Apostle John more than the others. He loves it when we walk in truth and love. And the Holy Spirit is jealous within us, like a lover is jealous. The Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. So God is all of those things. But today we're primarily talking about phileo, and agape, and we're going to get to that at the very end. So <clears throat> the first thing I want to talk about is that God's love initiates. There's four parts here. God's love initiates. We 
just went over this a second ago, that, that God would reach out to us before we ever knew him is kind of amazing. He demonstrated. He is the example for us. And John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And Romans 5.7, For scarcely will a righteous man, will one die, but yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You notice that Jesus called Matthew and Zacchaeus both outcast, pretty despicable characters, really, from a Jewish point of view, tax collectors. One of them was a Jew. A Jewish tax collector in that day and age was like, people hated him. And Jesus reached out to him. He initiated. He saw Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth, and he said, follow me. And what did Matthew do? He got up and followed him. And when Jesus came to the place where Zacchaeus was, he said, Zacchaeus, hurry up, come down. Today I must stay at your house. And why is that? It's because the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. That's the example laid out for us. He came to seek and save the lost, and thus, that's who we would aspire to love. That's the kind of love we'd aspire to have. And then, of course, Jesus showed himself to his disciples after his death, after his resurrection. He showed himself three times. He initiated contact with them three times. Even when they didn't know it was him, he was reaching out to them. And so what does that mean to us for a calling? When he initiates, how do we initiate? In Luke 10, 27, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and with all your strength and all your mind and love agape, your neighbor as yourself. That's what we're to do. That's his calling on us. Agape, your neighbor. Selfless, unidirectional, can't be stopped, can't be thwarted, love. So because he laid down his life for us, says First John 3.16, we ought also to lay down our lives for the brethren. I'm not sure what that's going to mean to you or to me, depending on the situation. But it certainly sounds like we should be selfless toward one another, willing to submit ourselves so that we could lift up somebody else. In Jude 1.20, But beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ until eternal life, how do you keep yourself in the love of God? You study his word. You get into the truth. You walk in obedience to it. That's how you demonstrate love. And that's how you keep yourself in the love of God. That's how you restore yourself when you're burned out when you're fried, when you can't do it anymore. And in Ephesians 5, walk in love as Christ has also loved us and given himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. And in verse 25, husbands, love your wives, agape your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. As men, maybe you're not married yet, Well, when you are, your calling is not to be a great leader. Your calling is to be a servant leader, to lay yourself down for your wife. You're called to do more than just be a sweet guy who sometimes gets it wrong and somehow still gets all his meals prepared and his laundry done. It should be about laying yourself down for your wife. And thus, we need to do that for each other. 
So the next thing we want to talk about is how God's love responds. That's another attribute of love, this agape love that you'll find in Scripture, that it's a response thing, that when it's been initiated, we respond. And here's the example, the greatest one I can think of, which is the Good Samaritan. The story's in Luke 10, verse 33. But a Samaritan, keep in mind, when Jesus is doing this parable, he's talking to Pharisees, people who are pretty high up in the whole having the appearance of godliness, having all of it figured out. And he's talking to them about a Samaritan who is a despicable to a Jew. That is a false Jew. That is somebody who is anathema to the Jews. He says, a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where this wounded man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. And he went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The Jewish law did not require even for a Jew to take care of another Jew that way. The Jews were merely required to show compassion, to offer aid. But he's saying, he went, this guy, the Samaritan, went the extra mile, paid for a room, a place for him to stay and recover, and then paid the innkeeper some money to take care of him. That's way beyond. That's a response to God's love. That is, if you've been forgiven so much, you'd be willing to give that much for another person and to show compassion. The prodigal son, as we know, that story too, Luke 15. But while he was still a long way off, the father saw this son and was filled with compassion. As the father's waiting for the son to return, he goes to the end of the driveway every day to wait to see if his son will come back. And when he comes back, he's waiting. He's anxious to see him and he has compassion on him. There are some of us, there are some of our kids, there are people in our distant families who are wayward, who are walked away from the Lord, or maybe aren't even walking at all. Are we eager for them to come back? Are we responding to God's love in our life that we're eager to see them come to the Lord? Are we eager to draw them in and to show them honor because they've, they've come back? Or are we standing here thinking, well, it's about time you get your act together. Um, I, I don't think that's the love that God's showing there. In John 14, Jesus says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, that is he who loves me. Because Jesus responded to the Lord that way, and he expects us to do the same. And, of course, there's Jesus and the lepers, Jesus and prostitutes, the woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery, all these tax collectors. And the examples are endless in Scripture of the response as an example. There's also Nicodemus, the weeping woman, the woman who is wiping Jesus' feet with her hair and her tears. There's the Roman soldier who encountered Jesus. And Paul talking with a centurion later on. Those are all great examples. You can find more. But for our calling, what are we going to do? What are we going to do to respond to this love that was given to us? In Ephesians 5, Paul says, Each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself. Same story. Love your wives. But then the wife must respect her husband. That's the expectation there, is that the, in response to love, just like we're to follow the Lord's commandments, the wife is to submit to her husband. It's a controversial thing in the church even, but it's a simple practice. It's just hard to do. Just like all of Christianity is very simple. It's just super hard. <laughs> it's a challenge. But there it is. The wife must respect her husband. 
That's God's plan. It's his design. It creates harmony. In James 2.15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go, be at peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them things needed of the body, what good's that? What kind of a love is that? If you say, I love you, you're awesome. I know you're going through a hard time, and someone else might be able to help you with that, but go and be warm and well-filled. No, that's not love. In John 14, Jesus says, Anybody who loves me, agapes me, will obey my teaching. And my Father will agape them. And we will come to them and make our home with them. Clearly, we're to follow his teaching. Clearly, we're to follow his word. We're to walk in truth. Another cemented calling there to walk in his truth, to not doubt his word, but to try to live it and to struggle with it because we will. We're still in the flesh. We're going to wrestle with it. The next thing about God's love, agape love, is that it submits. That's example that I can think of is that Jesus, even in the garden, in the morning of his, of his crucifixion, praying to the point where Blood's coming out of his pores. And his disciples are like fast asleep. He's sitting there saying, Lord, please, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Does he want to ever be separated from the Father? No. But that's what's called. And he says, not my will, but thine be done. Right? That is submission to the Father. That is love. He loves the Father so much he trusts him to the very end. Abraham and Isaac. Abraham trusted God. Isaac was delivered. You'll find that even the father submits to the son out of love for him. The father loves the son, agape is the son, and has given him all things into his hand. That's John 3. Because the son is going to do what the father commanded, he turned all things over to him to restore them back to the father. It's a cycle of submission between God the Son and, and God the Father. The Holy Spirit wanted to come, but could he come before Jesus died and was resurrected? No. Jesus had to go in order for the Holy Spirit to come. John sixteen seven. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For, I don't, for if I don't go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. God could have sent 10,000 angels to save his son. God could have sent the Holy Spirit to witness of him throughout the world with amazing burning clouds and fire and brimstone, but he didn't. That wasn't his plan. So the Holy Spirit also submitted to the Father and to the Son. And then a great example for us is from John the Baptist. In John 3.30, famous line from John, he must increase, I must decrease. That's the example for us, talking about Jesus. As John's, as John's ministry was exploding and he saw Jesus, he says, now it's time for me to fold up shop and let the, let the Son of Man take over. So what is our calling in this, in submission? Once again, uh, 
I'm not cherry picking. I, I don't really want to tell, tell wives to submit to their husbands, but God does. In Ephesians 5, wives must submit to their own husbands in everything. It's the pattern. He who does not love, in 1 John 4, does not know God, for God is love. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. For God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. We need to abide in that agape love. We need to seek out and submit to God's love. In James 4, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. That's the first component in that whole resisting the devil. The first thing is submitting to God. It's hard when your life is upside down or your circumstances really stink and you think God should change them. It's really hard to submit to God, but there is no other way to be powerful enough to work for him, to be salt and light, to resist the devil. If you don't submit to God, he resists the proud. Pride is the original sin if you didn't know it. It wasn't Adam and Eve doing the original sin. It was Satan saying, I will become like the most holy God. That was the original sin. In 1 Peter 5, likewise, younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And of course, in 1 Corinthians 13, love is not proud, it does not boast, is not self-seeking, it always hopes, always perseveres. These things are good for us to ponder, think about how we can actually live them out. And the next part is God's love goes. Um, There are a lot of scriptures here. I, I condensed them all. There's just so many. But essentially, this is the part where the rubber's going to meet the road. In John 14, Jesus says, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. That's his example for us. In Matthew 9, he says, Jesus went to all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues, out there teaching in the synagogues as a rabbi, preaching the gospel of the kingdom on the streets, and healing every sickness and every disease. I see nothing but action verbs, action words in there. In Matthew 21, then Jesus went into the temple of our God and drove out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and seats of those who sold doves. Again, he's going and he's doing. And this is controversial stuff. If Jesus was to do that today, if one of us was supposed to go do that um, in some other church because they were a big commercial church, I think we'd be arrested and probably rightly so. But when Jesus does it, he's chastising in love. He's, he's, he's fully committed to loving these people enough to show them the error of their way. The prodigal son, you see that the father ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. That's the second part of that passage I read to you before. And Jesus descended into hell to teach, to preach to the captives in Psalm 68. It says, you ascended on high leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord of God may dwell there. In Mark 15, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was waiting for the kingdom of God, taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Another example of 
love in action, going and doing and not just standing by. So what is our calling as a church? What are we supposed to do? How do we go? What are we going to do? Are we supposed to give up everything we have? There's an example of that in Mark 10. Jesus talking to the rich young ruler. Jesus loved him, agape him, and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, take up the cross, and follow me. Does that mean all of us need to sell all our stuff? I'm not sure that was the issue. When Jesus was talking to this man, he was a wealthy young man, and it mattered to him. His treasure was right there with his earthly treasure. So how open-handed are you when you pray? Are you praying like this? Are you holding your hands up and saying, I love you, Father, all this is yours, my family, whatever resources I have, my health? Because if you're holding stuff back from him, if you are actually praying for all these good things to happen to you, but you're not willing to sacrifice all this for him, what kind of love is that? What kind of a demonstration is that of going? Philip was so in tune with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 8, 26, 27. The Spirit told him, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. In other words, go out in the desert, <laughs> go somewhere where there's no people. I have someone I want you to preach the gospel to. It's a road, granted, it's got traffic on it, but it's not where all the people are congregated. And Philip's, he's a Greek. He doesn't know anybody. And yet he goes. And what does he see there? He arose and went. There was a man from Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of her treasury, who had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he's reading a scroll as he's riding in a chariot. This is an intelligent guy. Trying to read a scroll when you're bouncing along. This is a sharp guy. And he wants to know, what does this mean? What do all these words mean? And Philip explains it to him. And he becomes saved. And he wants to be baptized. Because Philip was receptive to the Holy Spirit. And he's willing to go. And of course, our calling is to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And the go, therefore, is assumed, as you heard Pastor Tim say the other day. That's not the operative part. That's assumed, like... You're going to be there because I told you to go. And when you're there, make disciples. So here we are. We've gone here. Now we need to make disciples. In Matthew 10, go, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. It's not necessarily a pleasant journey. It's not always easy. But go, go anyway. Recognize you're one of the fluffy things. You're not the one with the teeth. You're the one with the... You know, the tail and the fuzzies. Yeah, that. So be as wise as serpents, but as innocent as doves. And you see that lived out in Paul's journeys. Was Paul received well everywhere he went? Did he actually get a standing ovation? Did anybody have a cup of coffee with his name on it wherever he went to speak? Of course not. He got the styrofoam cup, if he got anything at all. We all deserve the styrofoam cup, as Simon Sinek says. And he knew this, Paul going out. Where did he go? Rome, Macedonia, Greece, Thessalonica, Colossae, Philippi, all of Asia Minor, all those places. And sometimes he went in chains. Sometimes he went by way of shipwreck. 
Sometimes he went by way of stoning, flogging, persecution, bad Facebook comments, negative trending. And how that started in Acts 21 was Paul's being instructed to go to Jerusalem as his first mission field was going to Jerusalem. As the brothers received him, confirmed him, said, yes, you're fit for service. And, uh, and then they said, maybe it's not such a good idea to go to Jerusalem. After all, you were one of them, and now they're going to want to kill you. So maybe this isn't such a good idea. And a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and when he had come to us, he took Paul's belt off of him, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jerus- at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So when we heard these things, we and those from that place pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. And Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he couldn't be persuaded, we stopped, saying, The will of the Lord be done. And after those days, we packed up and we went to Jerusalem. That is going when you know it's going to be hard. Well, as we, uh, as we work through God's love, I mean, I, I haven't done a great job of unpacking all the different meanings of this. I want to go back into that passage in John chapter 21, if you get your finger there. We all think we're good people. It's hard for me to say this, but God's calling me to, to say this to you, to me, to all of us. We think we're good people. I think it's a little bit of our problem. And we don't really understand the gospel, how it relates to people. And I'm using Peter and Jesus as an example. Because, as you know, Peter denied Jesus three times. The night of his, the morning of his betrayal, the morning of his being handed over to the Sanhedrin, and then handed over to Pilate. Peter was challenged three different times. And it was warned about it too. Peter was actually told about this in advance. Think about this. He was bold and he was saying, Lord, I'll follow you even unto death. I'll take up whatever you call me to do. And Jesus said in John 13, will you lay down your life for me? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you've denied me three times. As Peter knew this going into it. So you find in Mark 14, as an example, the third time he was challenged about knowing who this Jesus was. As Peter was out in the courtyard warming himself, trying to stay warm and overhearing what was going on in the court of Caiaphas, Peter began to call down curses, saying, I swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. No idea who this guy is. And Jesus, offering himself... And love, agape, and forgiveness here in John chapter 21. So after they'd had breakfast, Peter, you know, Jesus had made the, the fish, the fire, the bread, whipped it up like that, and was cooking it for them, and they were going to eat a spiritual act as a Jew. When you eat with somebody else, it's a spiritual thing. 
It's uh, identification with somebody. And here he is on the beach. And he turns to Peter, as these other disciples are there, he turns to Peter and he says, Simon, son of John, do you agape me more than these, these other brothers? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know I phileo you. That's what it says. You know that I think you're a great man. I love what we do together. I'm committed to the same thing that you want to do. And Jesus says, well, feed my lambs. Do it. Go do it if you love me. And he said a second time, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? And he said, Lord, you know I phileo you. You know that I think you're pretty awesome. And he says, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? Do you love me unconditionally? And Peter was grieved because he had said to him a third time. And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know I phileo you. And Jesus said to him, then feed my sheep. So the best that Peter could muster was, I think you're like a brother to me. I think what we do together, despite our ups and downs, is pretty cool. I love you, man. Yeah, I love you. He couldn't bring himself to say, sacrificially, unconditionally, I love you unto death and I would lay my life down for you. Now, why is that? Why is it that Peter, and this is like, this sticks out of scripture. This pops right up there. You can't avoid this. Why would Peter do that? Why would he do that? Why wouldn't he say it? And I'm telling you, it's because Peter understood what was in his heart. He finally got it. That was his final act of preparation right there. Being ready for the Holy Spirit in his life because he understood in his own power, he could not love the Lord God. It was not in his power to love back the way he had been loved. And he could never repay the debt that was paid to him. So apart from the power of Jesus Christ in us, in you, in me, we cannot love the way God has called us to love. It is not possible. So I'm going to say it again. People that think they're good people don't understand the gospel because there aren't any good people or bad people. We tend to look at people out there as if that's a bad guy. He's done terrible things. True, murderers, rapists, I don't know, cop killers. I can think of some great examples of people I would just love to execute judgment on, but the truth is God does not see it that way. God sees them as unsaved people or saved people. And that's the way we need to look at the world if we're going to love them. Because if we put filters on that says people are unlovable for some reason, then we're not going to go. We're not going to submit. We're not going to respond. We're not going to initiate. We're not going to do any of that. Because we're going to say we got an excuse. They're bad people. We don't need them. That's not how God looks at this. God does not want people to be cleaned up to come in the doors of this church. I remember Chuck Smith talking about the Jesus revolution on the beach, you know, founder of Calvary Chapel. At one point, you know, a lot of pretty teenage girls coming in off the, off the beach wearing bikini bottoms and stuff and getting saved right in the front row. They'd sit in the front. There's pictures of Chuck Smith teaching in this, I don't know, some hall somewhere. 
And there's all these teenagers and hippies down there, and some of them are scantily clad. And at one point, a couple of his elders took it upon themselves to put up a sign on the church door saying, no shirt, no shoes, no service. And Chuck tore it down, and he just about beat those guys with it because he said, you cannot expect them to be different coming in this door. It's the Holy Spirit in them that will make them different. And this will go away. He says, they will learn to be chaste. They will learn to be modest. And these guys will learn to clean up their mouths. Because the Holy Spirit cannot reside where there's this stuff coming out of their mouths. And sure enough, that's what happened. We're not going to clean them up. God is going to clean them up. So you need to understand that. We all need to understand that. We're not here to fix people up. And we're not here to tell them to pull on their bootstraps and yank themselves up. We're here to tell them about the love of Jesus Christ and what he's going to do. When you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you accepted Jesus' payment for your sin, and God immersed himself in you. I want you to think about it a little differently. We often sing about being washed in the blood, and that's true. Our garments are spotless now. But another thing happened. When he indwells you, he immerses himself in you. And the more you receive him, the more you open up your life for him, that cleanses you. It's not like a couple of spots on your jeans, like from running a chainsaw before you came to church. Okay. We're not talking about oil stains. We're talking about stains that are on your inside that he washes clean. I can't remember if it was Cicero or somebody else actually wrote a book of recipes. Um, Famous, famous philosopher wrote a book of recipes in which he used the term baptizo to describe pickling. I thought it was interesting because it's not normally a term used in cooking, apparently. But he says, I baptizoed those cucumbers. And as you know, a cucumber tastes like a cucumber until you blanch it and pickle it. Then it tastes like something else. That's what God does to you. He immerses you in his, his washing, cleansing blood. But he also indwells you completely and purges from the inside out. So as C.S. Lewis would say, if I'm a house to suppose that all I need is a little paint and some new cabinets, I'm paraphrasing. That's not what God has in mind for the remodel, okay? He doesn't think you're a good person that just needs a little touch-up and maybe replace a couple of balusters. He wants to tear out some walls. He wants to rewire the whole thing. He wants to add a floor, and you didn't think it was possible. Maybe he wants to put in a basement. Well picking up a house and making a basement. That's a challenge. What about the leaky roof? I'm not, I'm not capable of doing these fixes to myself. And it's a project that's going to take some time. We're being sanctified. We know this. We were sanctified. We're being sanctified. We will be sanctified. It's a process. But are you willing is the question. Are you willing to help in the demolition is another question. Some of us, I think we don't steal, we don't kill, we haven't committed adultery this week, we haven't lied today, we haven't speeded, all right, we did. Um, I didn't throw a brick at a cop at a BLM rally. I should be a pretty good guy. There are a lot of people you're going to encounter on the street that are going to think like this. 
When you show them Jesus Christ, you have to show them the law so that they can see that they are really morally not capable of making a defense because all these things happen inside of us. Adultery, covetousness, stealing. So when people make the excuse of, I, I haven't lied lately, so I must be a good person. Yeah, it's like them saying, I don't smoke or chew or go with women who do, so what's the problem? I should be okay with Jesus, right? Someone is emerging from the vehicle, so they're okay. So let's not gauge our degree of goodness based on somebody else. Let's just remember that. That's what the world tends to do, and we tend to be like that too. So trying to say that because I haven't lied much or I haven't stolen much or I haven't done it lately or I haven't had an adulterous thought lately is not an excuse. It's like telling your mom when you're a kid that you don't need a bath because your brother was lying in the mud puddle longer than you, okay? It doesn't work. So your goodness isn't your own. It's all on him who dwells in you. And Paul confirms that in Romans 7. In me, nothing good dwells, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. We know that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if you haven't heard that, if this is the first time you've ever heard that, it is true, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift, the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. If you believe you're saved, do you know your salvation is real? I'm asking it now because as we go forward in these really interesting times, this is a great time for you to take stock of where you're at. Have you actually confessed your need for the Savior or did you just ask him to come alongside and make your life better? Did you accept that forgiveness for your sins not just for the past, but also for the future, knowing that you're going to fail. And if you did, amen, that's good. But if you have not, you need Jesus Christ now, not later, now. There is no tomorrow. And if you have received Jesus Christ, is he your Lord and Savior, or is he just your Savior? Are your hands out like this? with everything you have? Or are your hands kind of like this, like partially there? Do you agape him? Do you love him with your health, your wealth, your family, your thoughts, your preferences, your tastes, your politics, your entertainment with his church? Because we all have preferences for this church, let's be honest. Some would like it to go this way. Some would like it to go that way. What does God want for this church? And are you willing to elevate what Jesus Christ has spoken in his word as being what this church should be about? Like I said, the times are drawing to a close, folks. I don't know. I don't know when the rapture is going to happen. But we only have so many days on this earth. Some of us know it really well. Some of us have diseases that are going to take us. Some of us are older in age and we've been there before and we know that it's just time. It's a matter of time. But we don't know our days. As we were singing in the beginning, 
I was thinking of a friend of mine, uh, Captain John Bevy, United States Marine Corps. As the deer panteth for the water, I remember singing with him at Pensacola Christian College at a youth rally down there when I was in flight school, and he was in flight school. He's a sweet man, strong man. We went separate ways. He went on to fly Cobras for the Marine Corps. I went into be a bombardier flying A6s in the Navy. And in the middle of my first tour, I got word that he had crashed. He had died in the desert in Saudi Arabia, ramping up for a conflict there. And I thought of him. He didn't know his days, but he lived like every day was his last. And I was trying to live my life like every day was my last. And I strive to do that. I strive to live like today is it. Without living like that, your life is going to lack purity and power. The Holy Spirit's going to have a hard time poking you if you don't think that this is your last chance to witness to somebody. If this isn't the last chance to submit to your husband or love your wife or show respect to your elders. Some of you don't know how that happened. You have no idea. It's possible to be hurt by Christians. It's true. In fact, if you're around Christians all the time, that's where your hurts are going to come from. It's logical, right? Don't blame Christianity. Don't blame Christians if you're hurt. Go to the Lord Jesus Christ with your hurts and let him resolve those issues in your life. Let him open your eyes to what he's doing. Second Peter chapter 1. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted us his very precious and great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. And for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, with virtue knowledge, knowledge self-control, and with self-control steadfastness, and with steadfastness godliness, and with godliness brotherly affection, agape, I'm sorry, phileo, and with brotherly affection, agape, love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. Make your calling and election sure. Can we have the worship team come on up? I ask pretty straightforwardly, and I realize that whenever I'm pointing, there's four more fingers pointing back at me, so I feel the burn too. But I ask you guys, have you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Not the time to fool around with it. Today is the day where you need to decide who you're going to follow. And if you have decided to follow Jesus Christ, young or old, do you want the last days of your life, the rest of your life, to matter for the Lord? Do you want to live a powerful life? Or do you want to live a life that's confused and muddled and ineffective, salt that is trampled underfoot and light that's hidden under a bushel? You can turn the corner right now. You can lose the sin that's entangling you. You can drop the heavy burden of unforgiveness that you're carrying against somebody else. You can drop it. You don't have to carry it. Imprisoning them in your unforgiveness is not going to change them at all. All it does is 
hoses you up. And you can leave him at the Savior's feet. You, you don't have to carry it. You don't have to carry that. So I want all of us to pray right now together. Father, we need you. We need your love. We need your forgiveness. You're the initiator of that agape love for us. We need your strength. I'm not going to look. I want everybody to close your eyes. But where you're at, if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, raise your hand. I'm not looking. No one else is looking. But you need to show God that you're willing to at least go enough to raise your hand to say, I need you, Father. I am not one of yours, and I need to be one of yours. You can say right now where you're at, I need you, Jesus. I'm a sinner through and through. I confess it. I need your forgiveness and your blood to wash me clean. I need you to make me whole. I need you to make me pure. And Holy Spirit, come into my heart and take it over. I am so ready to be filled with you and purged of everything else. So Jesus, I give you all of who I am, all of what I have, all my relationships and all my future. You're my Lord and King from here on, and I'm getting off the throne and you're getting on it. Holy Father, I'm looking for you to guide my steps and to make something amazing out of my life and what's left of it. So show me what's next. I love you, Father. I will follow you. Okay, you can put your hand down. And if some of you have burdens, your pains, your anger, anything that's anything that's interrupting your relationship with Jesus Christ, preventing you from being salt and light, from receiving his love and giving it off again, here's an opportunity for you to give it all to him. You want to be all in? Here's your chance. Pray with me. Lord, I need you. Oh, how I need you. Every hour I need you, Father. Take this load, this frustration, the pain, the unforgiveness. I admit I've been holding out on you. And as a result, I can't truly say I'm living for you. I've not been the husband, the wife, the parent, the employer, the employee, the daughter, the son you're calling me to be. And I just ask you, Father, Make me useful. I'm taking my hands off the controls. I'm opening my hands up to you. If you want to release your life to Jesus Christ, put your hands together in your lap and offer it all up to him. Help me, Father, to see your face. Help me to seek it. Help me to hear your voice. Teach me to love effectively. Help me to give you my full attention, Father. Thank you, Father. Thanks so much for your goodness to us, for coming in in our midst today as we worship you in music and we worship you in the word. We thank you for your greatness and your powerfulness and your almighty nature that condescended to us to love us so much that you would would reach out to us. As a congregation, we want to be more effective and we want to be wise. So we just ask you to, to glorify yourself in our meeting here. I'm leaving you with a phrase here before Jim begins singing. A.W. Tozier said that we're saved to worship God. 
All that Christ has done for us in the past and all that he is doing now leads us to this one end, to worship God, to glorify him and enjoy him forever as a result.